welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. A world order is organised around sovereign states and each human being is meant to belong to at least one state where they're a citizen. Yet, according to the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, around 10 million people in the world are stateless. They do not have citizenship in any state. In a world completely occupied by territorially defined sovereign states, what happens to those who do not belong anywhere? The topic has regained some urgency on the international political agenda as thousands of Rohingya have fled to Bangladesh in recent months. It is also the topic of a new book published by Routledge, Understanding Statelessness, edited by Tendai Bloom, Philip Cole and Catherine Tonkis. Two of the editors, Tendai Bloom, lecturer in politics and international studies at the Open University, and Catherine Tonkis, lecturer in sociology and policy at Aston University, join this episode to discuss what statelessness is, what its causes are, and what could possibly prevent it. To start our conversation, Tendai gives an overview of what statelessness is and what we can say about how many people are stateless in the world today. There are several, I guess there are several ways in which statelessness has been understood and is still understood. So, I mean, you might hear people talking about stateless peoples, so like groups of people who feel that they should have a national state but don't. And some of those individuals might be citizens of existing states and some might not. Then there's those who live in spaces that aren't under the effective control of a state. That's another approach that people have taken. And again, some of those people might be citizens of states and some might not, and some might be members of peoples that are seeking statehood. But I guess um, the most commonly used definition in legal circles would be those individuals who are stateless according to international law. And that would be from the 1954 convention. So someone would be stateless if they're not recognised as a national, as it says in the in the convention, by any state under the operation of its law. And I guess that's the definition that we'd be focusing on when you're looking at organisations like UNHCR and the various campaigns to address statelessness. But that can intersect with those other understandings of statelessness. And I think it's important to see all of those different approaches playing out. So um, I guess looking at numbers, um, UNHCR has estimated that there are 10 million. That's a conservative estimate. I mean, they they would admit. And then the Institute for Statelessness and Inclusion, which is an NGO also doing research into statelessness, finds um, that there are 15 million stateless people in the world, according to that uh, 1954 convention definition. But both admit that that's conservative and um, it's very hard to know really how many people are stateless, even according to that legal definition in the world. Mm. So what does it actually mean for someone, for an individual, to be stateless? According to that legal definition? You know, what does it, what does it mean for a person's life to be, um, to be stateless? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, if you think of all the things in which... For you to do them, you have to use some form of ID. People who are stateless may well find themselves unable to do those things. So the most obvious is when you cross a border and you use a passport. But then when you register for school, when you get educational qualifications, when you seek medical help, when you want to marry or go through a legal process, maybe you want a bank account or a phone 
contract, basically any of the things where you're, need, you're needing to identify yourself, stateless persons might find themselves unable to do those things. And obviously it differs depending on the country they're in. But there is risk of quite extreme uh, exclusion from institutional structures. Yeah, and I think that's um, a really kind of important point to make because I think sometimes when you read about um, you know, definitions of statelessness or you know what it what it means to be stateless, um, you know we often just talk about kind of well political rights, social rights, and they're kind of almost like a quite dry way. But actually, you know, as Tendo's kind of outlined, if you um, think about what that actually means to lack the ability to um, go to school or to um, access healthcare or to really do anything that would enable you to build a life. Um, you know, as Tendo says, that could drive some quite extreme exclusions depending on the context of statelessness. Mm. Could you maybe um, give some examples? I mean, we, we're going to talk a little bit in the end about the Rohingya in particular because that's quite a, um, you know, a, a, a pressing example. But could you maybe give some other examples of? Um, who we might think of when we think of stateless people. Um, okay, I could give an example that I think can help to challenge our assumptions of where statelessness comes from, maybe. So uh, at the moment in South Africa, there's a, a, a young family who whose daughter is stateless. And why is she stateless? Well, the couple, uh, according to Lawyers for Human Rights South Africa, the couple... Uh, from Cuba, Cuban citizens, went to South Africa for a short-term contract working as engineers. And whilst in South Africa, they fell pregnant and were very happy to, to celebrate the birth of their daughter, Daniela. But when she was born, they discovered that they were unable to allocate her any citizenship. And what's that? what that's meant for them is that the family have been unable to leave South Africa. So even though they intended to go on a short-term contract, the family are now unable to realise their plan to return to Cuba and are struggling still to allocate a citizenship to their daughter. So that's like one of the cases that sometimes you don't think of when we think of some of the extreme situations of statelessness. Yeah, so they also don't then have the rights for their daughter um, in South Africa. Yeah, so yeah. You they'll have... I mean, in each country, the rights that you're able to access will be different. In all countries, one example that you can look at that's um, uh, some studies have been done by the European Network on Statelessness recently looking into detention, for example. So they found that in many countries, there's a serious problem of stateless people being detained because they're often detained under immigration regulations because they're not a citizen of the country where they are mm. and they're not not necessarily regularly present in the country where they are. And so they're detained pending deportation, but there's nowhere that they can be deported to. So they can find themselves either stuck in indefinite detention or constantly being picked up again and again to be detained uh, without being able to address the situation. That's another type of situation that can arise as a result. Yeah, and, and I think it's also you know important, and I think um, Tende sort of alluded to this when we started, but you know, that, that statelessness isn't necessarily something that occurs always in relation to migration. And so, um, you know, an example at the moment is what's been happening in the Dominican Republic um, with how, um, so people who are descended of kind of Haitian descent living in the Dominican Republic, over time, 
um, kind of nationality laws have changed in that country. And so increasingly, people of Haitian descent are finding themselves kind of stateless in situ. So they were born in a country where they were citizens, and then that's kind of changed and it's taken away from them. And so they're kind of denationalized in that context. So, you know, there are examples as well where we're not necessarily talking about migration, but where this can arise as a result of changes in the law. Yeah, and that's that brings me on to my next question because one, um, so when you look at um, uh, statelessness um, in sort of the international community, it seems to be the responsibility of the UNHCR, which is the refugee agency um, of the UN. Um, but uh, you just mentioned an example of where statelessness might not emerge. Um, from people moving. So I wonder if you could maybe elaborate even more on that. So what is the relation between statelessness and, and migration? And also um, a, a second part of that is um, how would we look at statelessness in relation to, to refugees? Um, maybe this is too many questions at once here, but um, but obviously the UNHCR makes a distinction between people who are stateless and people who are refugees. Uh, but in some of the, um, uh, in, in some discussions about refugees, uh, notably like, as you uh, are obviously well aware, Hannah Arendt's discussion, uh, then refugees are kind of automatically seen as stateless. So uh, what is the relation here between these different concepts? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when we're talking about statelessness, we need to remember that it kind of cuts across um, different categories. So, you know, as I just mentioned, you can be stateless and, and not be in a migration um, related situation. But equally, um, many refugees are stateless, um, but there are plenty of stateless people who aren't refugees, essentially. So the two can kind of intersect. Mm. Um we know that stateless people are likely to be vulnerable to forced displacement um, uh, for a variety of reasons, obviously related to kind of exclusion from the citizenry. Um, so you can have stateless refugees, um, but it, refugees aren't necessarily stateless because many refugees will have a citizenship. Um, so I guess it's about that kind of vulnerability to the displacement and also um, refugees are also vulnerable to, um, sorry, stateless people are also vulnerable to um, trafficking um, as a result of, again, their kind of lack of protections. Um, but they might also just be other kinds of migrants as well looking to, to move, um, you know, and then there's the other side of the coin as well, where obviously it is more difficult for a stateless person to cross a border regularly um, due to kind of lack of, lack of documentation of their citizenship. Um, so, um, kind of undocumented migration of stateless people as well. So, could you um, could you say about refugees and the refugees um, maybe sort of de facto stateless sometimes, but that there is a difference because they do still have often a legal citizenship. Is yeah, that... I think what it's. I think you're raising a really important point, actually. To be asking what we're talking about when we're talking about statelessness, what we're talking about when we're talking about um, the refugee status. Now, legally, we have a definition of refugee and we have a definition of a stateless person, and those are distinct. And so you can see an individual being defined 
as a refugee, but not being defined legally as a stateless person. And you could see someone being defined legally as stateless and not being defined legally as a refugee. But when we talk about what uh, it means to be forced to leave a country and being unable to uh, stay in the place where you have citizenship, we might want to wonder if these definitions in reality are more complex. So mm. I think you're raising an important discussion that it's worth it's worth having. Yeah. So moving on to um, perhaps possible solutions to statelessness, and in your book um, you kind of suggest that statelessness is endemic to the current international system of states rather than something that's exceptional to it. Uh, and you also argue that citizenship isn't necessarily the only or the best, uh, if, I've, if I've understood you right, uh, you argue that isn't necessarily the only or best solution to statelessness, partly because citizenship or statelessness actually originates from the same system um, uh, that creates statelessness. So to me, that sounds quite uh, like a quite radical um, argument, potentially, or conclusion. Um, could you maybe... Or do you want to elaborate or explain a bit more and, and correct me if I've misunderstood your your, your argument as well? On yeah, that. no, I think that is, yeah, I think that's quite a good um, good kind of reflection of what we're trying to do in a way. And I think um, our co-editor Phil Cole mm. um, sort of says theory is an invitation to be radical, and I guess that is what we're trying to say in the book. So I don't think. Um, either of us would really suggest that we shouldn't, um, you know, welcome opportunities for stateless people to gain citizenship in kind of short-term practical situations. Of course, that is a really important thing. But I think in the book, what we're trying to do is to um, be a bit more radical and imagine kind of different possibilities. And I guess one of the issues is that, you know, why is it that we think of statelessness as the problem or the anomaly um, when it it does appear that it is quite endemic to the system that we're talking about. And so why aren't we thinking more about problematizing this system and exploring how we might change that to stop the kind of recurrent issues of statelessness? And in a way, I think maybe this relates back to what we were just talking about in terms of definitions of stateless people and refugees and other kinds of migrants. I think, um, you know, again and again, we're kind of talking about these things as if they're kind of the problem in the system but actually you know why does the system give rise to um, these kinds of problems and how can we change it and I think really that's hopefully something that we're trying to address in the book. Yeah so actually when you say it's endemic what what do you um yeah what do you mean by, by that? I mean you can look at that in different ways the truth is that um there are stateless persons in all over the world mm. and so in that sense um, statelessness is endemic to um, our international political system as well as um, individual states instantiations but also um, I guess one thing that we explored was that it looks like the way um, things are set up now it's likely that there would be statelessness so not, on, so not only is there in fact statelessness, but it looks like um, we have a system in which we uh, prioritise the citizen relationship and it seems to be considered okay within existing political systems to exclude individuals from social goods and human rights on the basis of non-citizenship and to 
um, allow that to continue. And if you have that set up, it seemed likely that you could have situations where people could be, in fact, excluded from every political system. So do you mean the setup whereby you um, prioritise the rights of your own citizens over uh, non-citizens? Yeah. So the kind of um, the assumption of citizenship. So we assume uh, our kind of system works on the basis that we assume that people are citizens of um, somewhere and that they have kind of a functioning citizenship. Um, but actually what we see, you know, all over the world is that that isn't necessarily um, the case. Um, but if we simply assume citizenship, then we kind of neglect all of these people and we kind of don't have a place for them. We don't have a way of um, ensuring that their rights are protected. Right, OK. Because I suppose... I mean, that's really interesting because I suppose most people would think of statelessness as a problem primarily of uh, citizenship acquisition, so that the problem is that you don't get your citizenship in the first place, whereas I suppose you're suggesting that, well, the problem also is that uh, once you don't have your citizenship, there is kind of no way within this system to to deal with that. There's that, but also there's the um, question of whether the system of citizenships that we currently have would be able to cater for everyone to have citizenship. So we currently have, like you mentioned, um, people who don't acquire citizenship, whether because of um, discrimination or administrative difficulties. Uh, and then you have people whose citizenship is removed from them, um, uh, whether like in the case that uh, Katie described. Uh, but then you also have... Um, like we mentioned at the beginning, um, uh, people for whom the existing citizenships that are available don't feel appropriate. So we might want to wonder um, how to understand these all these different complex ways of relating to the international system, rather than focusing always first on the way the citizen relates to the international system, and then trying to look at how you pull people into that relationship. And instead to try and question uh, how these other ways of relating are functioning. But not to do that uh, uh, and at the same time exclude people from access to citizenship. So whilst citizenship mm. remains the dominant way of acquiring uh, rights and access to institutional structures, obviously people need access to citizenship, but at the same time questioning why that is the case and why there are people for whom it doesn't seem to be functioning well. Mm. So would a kind of practical, although perhaps politically uh, not so feasible, um, but but would a practical solution in a way to uh, people's current suffering from statelessness be some sort of um, international norms of, of what rights uh, or strengthening rights of non-citizens? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, absolutely, um, uh, you know, that, that that is something that, that needs to happen and there are different ways that, um, we could kind of approach that. I mean, I think, I think there is another side to this, and it is about citizenship. I think that this should drive us to re-examine citizenship as well. Um, so I think there are different ways of approaching the issue of citizenship, and so um, at the moment we have this kind of very um, exclusionary model based on the kind of nation-state system, where you know we're kind of saying to people, you must 
you must kind of subscribe to this particular um, nationality in order to have a citizenship of this place. And, you know, that can give rise to some quite exclusionary logics as well. Um, so I think that there are kind of two sides to the coin. I think, yes, um, we have to find ways of um, better kind of recognising people who don't have a citizenship and for whom actually getting citizenship maybe wouldn't be appropriate and exploring how we might recognise other statuses um, in that kind of context and how we might better protect rights. But I think on the other hand, we also have to think about people for whom, you know, it, it, those people that, that would want to have citizenship and would want to have that kind of relationship but are excluded from doing so because the form of citizenship that we have is very exclusionary. And so could we kind of reimagine citizenship to be better aligned with human rights? Mm. I mean, I would assume that um, most people who are stateless would, would like to be citizens or, or? Well, I think there are different examples. I think that, um, you know, a lot of um, stateless people would like to be citizens, but I think there are um, examples. So in uh, Tendo's work, for example, she talks about kind of colonised groups and their mm. access to citizenship. And Tendo, I don't want to speak for you if you want to talk about that. No, but I, I would, yeah, so I would say what's tr one thing that's, that's troubling about um, the prioritisation of citizenship rather than the prioritisation of rights. And of course, in our existing framework, in theory, everyone has human rights. It's just, it's quite difficult to access them without mm. citizenship. So in our existing system where that citizenship is prioritised, you also risk stifling struggles against certain citizenships or struggles against... Um, states that it's felt are illegitimate, for example. Um, so I was just going to mention, so one example I've looked at, which is which is complex because the people in that example are not stateless. So it's interesting to look at how they're challenging a, a citizenship within a context where they're not stateless is um, looking at particularly the Iroquois or Haudenosaunee uh, in the east coast of North America. And so whilst um, they are in fact citizens for the most part of the United States and Canada, but have tried to use Haudenosaunee travel documents, for example, and they have been recognised internationally and then sometimes they're blocked from travel using them. And it's interesting to look at how the dominance of uh, citizenships of recognised states makes it very difficult for some types of political struggle to become recognised as struggles, as legitimate struggles because there's always the, the, the co coercive risk of loss of rights. And in that case where people are wanting to use travel documents, there's the risk of not being allowed to travel if you are unwilling to use the citizenship of a recognised state. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and so, finally, um, I thought, uh, so you made this um, video uh, which... Um, which will be on uh, our uh, website as well, the link to it, um, that explained a little bit the case of the Rohingya, um, who, uh, well, um, if would you like to explain a little bit in what way they are stateless and how their statelessness is, is affecting their situation? So the Rohingya um, sort of lost their citizenship in, in the early 1980s um, and... I mean, I think it's important to recognise that, that the Rohingya aren't um, sort of moving because they are stateless, but yeah. statelessness has obviously been a huge factor um, in their um, continued persecution. Um, and 
the kind of latest consequence that we're seeing of that is this kind of huge movement. I think the latest count was something like over 600,000 people in just a couple of months moving from Myanmar into uh, Bangladesh um, as, uh, as as stateless refugees um, as a result of, of um, kind of very, very severe persecution uh, and violence um, in those communities. Um, so it is, um, you know, a very extreme example of, of the persecution of stateless people. But I guess the question you might want to ask in that case, and I think which helps us, is to think, would, I mean, would that still be happening if they hadn't have been denationalised? And would the way the international community responds be different if they were Burmese citizens? And I don't know, I don't have an answer to that, but that helps us to understand the role of um, the role of statelessness and citizenship in our discussion of what's going on as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Denationalisation was this kind of stage on a on a trajectory to dehumanisation as well. Yeah, so I wonder if um, in, in this particular case, if the statelessness, um, yeah, may contribute to the dehumanisation and the, kind of be an enabler of persecution, um, Whereas once uh, once that's happened and 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 people have then become refugees or have had to flee because of that, I, I don't know if statelessness then plays a secondary um, role as well in your kind of um, uh, uh, well in in the refugeehood part. I don't know if that makes any sense. So if statelessness kind of plays a different role in terms of. The, the causes of um, making someone a refugee and once someone is a refugee, whether uh, whether that changes um, that experience as well. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess they're both kind of sources of, of, of vulnerability in their own right. So, um, you know, being a stateless refugee is being a, a point of extreme um, vulnerability. And, you know, I, I think the question that Tende poses is is a really important one to ask whether um, the international system would have cared more. And I think that does come back to kind of our point about um, how sort of stateless people are, um, you know, are extremely vulnerable because they don't have basic rights protections, even in the country uh, that they call home. Um, and so then once you add into that a kind of forced displacement, and, and in this case to a, a country um relatively um, ill-placed to meet kind of the basic needs of the a huge number of refugees. Um, you know, yet that is a, a position of extreme vulnerability. Mm. I think if you want to see um, more discussion of this, I mean, Greg Constantine, for example, has been exploring the role statelessness has played in the experience of the Rohingya in Myanmar for a long time. And he's currently in Myanmar documenting uh, in Bangladesh, sorry, documenting what's going on, okay. and I would I would direct uh, people who listen to the broadcast to look up his work as well to try and see how he's trying to understand what's going on and how he is finding that the people he's meeting are trying to understand their situation. Yeah, that's a good tip. Um, just to finish, uh, is there anything else that um, you wanted to bring up, or something else like a key message from the book, or something that you wanted? Um, uh, that you wanted to talk about. Um, I, I mean, I was going to say, you know, when I was when I was thinking about um, this this issue, I was reading um, 
uh, an article in the Guardian written by um, you know uh, Salman Rushdie and a number of others, and people might have seen it themselves. And it, it ended with this phrase: "After every atrocity, we say never again." And this time we must mean it. And they're writing in relation to the Rohingya. And and it just really struck me that that's kind of a, a key message that we're trying to get across in this book: that we need to stop thinking of this as anomalous and really kind of tackle the root causes of these kinds of problems. Yes, uh, the recognition that, um, in fact, every single one of us has to live somewhere. So if we're going to live on this world, we need to live somewhere, and we need to satisfy our basic needs somewhere. And uh, when, so long as we allow that statelessness can, it can exclude people from uh, satisfying that very basic need, uh, we're going to have an incoherent international system. So would your message be as well, um, what you said earlier, that you'd prefer the focus, it, it would be a sort of solution if focus were more on rights and a citizenship? I think we need to look at both and we need to re-examine why um, this, the, why, we, why the system currently prioritises citizenship to such an extent that it can often seem okay within our political systems to completely exclude individuals from social goods, from human rights, and from recognition within the institutional structure simply on the basis of non-citizenship. And in so doing, potentially exclude people from such recognition anywhere on earth. So it's more re-examining how that's happening, and looking at how to move forward to have a more coherent system. And in the meantime, ensuring that everyone has access to their basic rights, however it will work in the context they're currently living in. To find out more about the book Understanding Statelessness, as well as its editors, and to get a discount code, please visit our website talkinmigration.com. That was all for this time. Thank you for listening.